Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm in what, if this were a magazine profile, I would describe as the beautiful home, <laughs> and indeed it is, of Professor Diane Stone. Diane, how are you? I'm pretty good today. It's lovely to be with you. And not only that, but my cup of tea has been resting on your new book, Knowledge, Actors and Transnational Governance, the Private-Public Policy Nexus in the Global Agora, or Agora, depending on where you went How you pronounce it. It's a bit of a mouthful of a title for a book. I was going to say, it's one of those things you just wake up in the morning and start thinking. You know, it comes from a dream. Why don't you tell us a wee bit about it? It'd be fun to learn something about it. It's the result, I guess, of about uh, 10 years worth of um, a research focus on think tanks, primarily. Mm -hmm. uh, think tanks um, are organisations that are interested in making uh, the connection between science and policy or knowledge and power, um, and they often categorise themselves as a bridge between mm -hmm. these two so-called worlds, which mm -hmm. they have an interest. That's one of the arguments I make, is that they have an interest in uh, making a distinction between these two worlds, mm -hmm. uh, one of scholarship and research and investigation, mm -hmm. um, and then using the results of that research process to inform policy um, and uh, the development of uh, reforms and mm -hmm. new kinds of initi initiatives um, in the policy-making world. So uh, that's the, the central focus of the book, um, mm -hmm. but it does um, expand out to look not just at think tanks as organisations, but also think tanks as uh, network uh, organisations that engage in um, all sorts of collaborations mm -hmm. uh, with other kinds of organisations, including uh, NGOs, um, <coughs> universities, uh, international organisations, um, and also business as well, various um, corporate actors um, on the one hand, um, but also uh, looking at think tanks um, in terms of their influence and whether or not they actually have influence. They like to say they have influence, and they need to say that they have influence in order to um, uh, continue to have a good relationship with their donors and secure future funding, uh, but also to justify the kinds of activities that they're involved in. Now, how do I get defined as a think tank? Uh, let me take a classic example that's obvious to people, I guess, the Rand Corporation, which attracts lots of people who like surfing because it's a Santa <laughs> Monica yes. beach versus you and I sit down today, we have a chat and decide we're going to call create a thing called Stone Miller Consulting and mm -hmm. we say we're a think tank. Mm -hmm. What's the space between those two things? What gets to count as a think tank? Okay, well it depends. And this is part of the problem because the one thing that um, people who research think tanks um, can agree upon <laughs> is that they don't agree on a definition, <laughs> okay. right, and yeah. there are several um, several uh, competing definitions around. And I steer clear of definition. Really? Uh, okay. I do yeah. because uh, what counts as a think tank in Peru is quite different from what counts as a think tank in India or Singapore mm -hmm. or the United States. So there, are, there's huge variety in in the think tank form, and also there has been. Um, a historical development of the notion of what constitutes a think tank, and uh, the think tank that um, think tank definition that has been um, most prevalent or mm -hmm. most dominant mm -hmm. 
is an American one mm -hmm. from last century. And I think we're still stuck with a very uh, specific um, cultural, mm -hmm. uh, political cultural definition of think tank of a form that existed a hundred years ago. So the original idea of think tank was something that um, was independent of political parties um, and also independent of corporate interest that was engaged in the disinterested or so-called disinterested mm -hmm. uh, and uh, neutral investigation of policy issues and policy problems using research and analysis um, mm -hmm. to inform policy, which goes back to RAND. Okay, mm -hmm. RAND is an acronym for research and development, mm -hmm. and it just got shortened mm -hmm. uh, in order to um, make it easier to identify the organization. And I should say for US listeners who are about <laughs> half the audience to this, in British English, disinterested does not mean uninterested, i.e. I don't care. It means materially uninvolved, i.e. I don't have an interest mm. that would disqualify me from yeah. being non-partisan. Yeah. No conflict of interest that yeah. come in the sense of yeah. funding um, from uh, an organisation to generate results favourable right. uh, to the donor. So without trying to make you come up with a definition, because you've resisted that temptation in 10 years of research in a new book, I'm, I'm not going to win that <laughs> struggle with you if we were to have one. What if that's the US definition mm. is different from what you would get with something like the Institute for Public Policy Research in the UK or whatever there is in India or Australia that you were alluding to. What, what's an example of another definition or another understanding that comes from a different country? Uh, if you go to Malaysia, mm -hmm. um, the understanding of a think tank, or many Southeast Asian notions, um, the first generation of think tank, mm -hmm. uh, they're often sponsored by governments, either informally and at arm's length, or in some cases very directly. So in Brunei, a think tank is often a unit within a government department, as is the case in Vietnam. Uh, so there's a much different uh, understanding about the degree of distance from government, mm -hmm. uh, which is quite um, interesting. Um, but the, also to go back to your question uh, earlier about what's the difference between um, the classic think right. tank idea of RAND and you and I setting up uh, a consultancy firm mm. called Stone Miller. Which I, 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 coming to grips with that, or it also might be a 70s folk band, oh, which would be a bit disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Stone Miller, here we are. The difference is that in, in a lot of parts of uh, southeastern Europe, you do have that format of a consultancy um, that then goes on to develop think tank-like functions. Okay. Um, coming back to Southeast Asia, because of the often quite close ties of the first generation think tanks with government, um, they might be legally established as a non-governmental organization, but because of the um, relationship to government, they're called um, mangoes by those who are critical of them, because they're manipulated NGOs in some way. They have that um, very close um, connection to government. Um, but then again, in other parts of the world, um, the consultancy function is necessary in order to cross-subsidize the more um, public-motivated think tank-like mm -hmm. 
activities. Uh, in Japan or Korea, it's an affiliation with um, large multinational corporations, right. and the funding there cross-subsidizes mm. mm. the think tank-like mm. activity. So you and I might have two outfits, in effect. One yeah. springing from the other. One would be the consultancy that brings in the dough mm. and that is partial in the sense that it is the creature of whoever employs us mm. at the time, though we would have ethical limits about that, as with any professional department. And then the second thing would be the offspring, which would be funded, subsidised. Mm -hmm. What about, I'm thinking of things that fit the US model to a certain extent, but in fact are totally partisan. Classically, of course, Brookings mm -hmm. Institute for Institutional Management mm -hmm. and the American Enterprise Institute, mm -hmm. where basically one is the think tank for the Democratic Party, one is the think tank for the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And when the Republicans are in power presidentially, all the guys from AEI go trotting off into DC to mm -hmm. the jobs. And then when the Democrats are in power, off they chuff back to the AEI mm -hmm. and vice versa. Right? Yeah. The revolving door phenomenon. Right. Yeah. Uh, you move in and out of think tanks depending on uh, which which party is in in office. Uh, you you see those sorts of um, quite partisan uh, bodies around uh, the world in other countries, um, and not just focused on a political party. You also see what I call vanity think tanks. That's the one we would have. Yeah, <laughs> that's set up by a political candidate right. either before they go into office uh -huh. um, and then also as they come out of office, mm -hmm. which might be better mm -hmm. thought of as a legacy think tank rather than... So a bit like a presidential library in the US, mm. uh, yep. actually, which is a sort of research institution that's set up by US presidents mm. when they depart. Whereas when running for office, they write a book, which no doubt some have, not, have neither read nor written, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, you know, that's, that's the, the process. Fascinating. So you've looked at these things for a long time and lots of them. Do you have a view of them? Do you think of them, if one can generalise, as insidious and wicked or valuable? And are they good articulators of university knowledge to the processes of the public, public interest? It's difficult to generalise about them. Mm. Um, do I find them insidious? I think I'm finding them increasingly irrelevant. Irrelevant? Um, you've, you've produced your book in order to <laughs> bury them. Irrelevant in the sense that they're losing their distinctiveness. Mm -hmm. I've started to think of them as organisations of last century. Mm. And it goes back to this idea of them being a bridge between um, knowledge production organisations and interests and actors on the one hand, um, and then knowledge consumers in state and society mm -hmm. on the other. Um, and what I do do in the, the book is criticise this distinction mm -hmm. and say it's a false distinction. But think tanks have worked on this distinction for the past century because it suits their um, or own organisational mm -hmm. interests mm -hmm. to maintain the separation between um, the world of scholarship on the one hand um, and the world of decision-making on the other because they can act as the interlocutors mm. or the translators. So uh, it works in the interests of think tanks to portray university researchers um, as eggheads, mm. okay, as living in an ivory tower or um, having um, such distance from the real world of decision making um, that they're not effective communicators, mm -hmm. where think tanks then portray, portray themselves as being um, excellent communicators and um, 
negotiators with the media, media through their soundbite forms of analysis. Yeah. And they do do that. They've been very successful at producing, um, creating or inventing. If you go back to the Heritage Foundation and Edwin Kuhlner, mm. who was the first um, director and founder of the organisation, he pioneered the idea of the policy brief. You know, if it couldn't fit, if you couldn't fit a hundred copies of your analysis into a briefcase, then there was no point uh, mm -hmm. going to Congress and trying to sell their uh, your ideas because politicians have the attention span of a gnat. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got mm -hmm. to get it across. Um, and a gnat from the MTV era. Yeah, yeah. Not which compounds it. The solid nineteenth-century gnat, the yeah. bookish gnat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so unless you could get your core ideas into mm. three or four pages mm. and of course there'd be a much longer analysis to go with it but right, just right. simply getting things onto the mm. table you you had to um, develop all sorts of styles and formats that university scholars were not very good at mm. because the incentive structure in the universities is to produce books or uh, journal articles um, and the use of impenetrable models and data and, um, production mm. that is not easily communicated mm. um, or are produced in such a codified way mm. for a small, um, highly specialised audience. Uh, you needed these kinds of translation organisations mm. to spread the, uh, the analysis, but also in an applied way. Now, why are they no longer so relevant? Uh, because universities uh, are now setting up their own think tanks. Uh, universities have got in on the on the game. Um, the pressures on universities to have impact in society or on industry or within the public sphere has meant that they've now adopted, <coughs> not throughout the entirety of universities, mm. but within certain areas, um, they've adopted uh, many of the styles and techniques that have been deployed by think tanks um, to good effect mm. um, over um, the last few decades. And it's not just universities. If you go to um, some of the big um, uh, non-governmental organisations like Transparency International or Oxfam, they produce research. How they is sure. that research any different from yeah. that produced yeah. by a think tank? They sure do mm. and get a lot of attention for it. Although it's been interesting because as you probably are aware, Oxfam, which produced a really remarkable report on inequality in Britain recently, has been threatened with declassification from being a charity yes. as a consequence in the eyes of the crazy right, i.e. <laughs> it's the whole British politics apart mm. from one person. But anyway, according to some people on the government benches, this is because it claims that They've policy has uh, been mm. inimical mm. to the erosion of poverty it, but they've crossed the line and become part of the wealthy and mm -hmm. hence compromised yeah. their status as a charity. Uh, well, my, rather a large number of think tanks would have the same status as, mm. as Oxfam, so um, it's not alone. And the charity commissioners have from time to time been asked to investigate some of the activities right. of, of think tanks, um, some of the new, quite um, overtly partisan ones through to some of the old... Uh, old farm. Yeah, like Chatham House. In, right. Mm. In the U, which is an international affairs entity, in the US, the 501c3s, as they're called, mm. after the name of uh, the, the subheadings within the tax code that apply to them, 
can say anything they want about anything mm. as long as they don't come down in favor of the Democrats or the Republicans when it comes to a vote. Mm -hmm. They can pretty much do whatever they want. This becomes very complicated, though, with churches, of course, which especially evangelical churches, to a certain extent so-called black churches, are pulpits at election time for people to vote mm. one way or the other. So the way that I guess things like Brookings and the American Enterprise Institute get away from this is that they don't say vote for X mm -hmm. person, mm -hmm. they say support Y policy. Right. Which is an extremely narrow definition of politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, it pretty much is quite similar in uh, the UK as well. Is it? Yes. Right. Um, but um, one of the the, the main uh, oversight body is the charity mm. commissioners, mm. and they don't have the resources or the funding or the staff in order to pursue these kinds of issues right. in any great detail. Whereas the Internal Revenue Service in the United <laughs> States does. Mm. <laughs> And they will go after you. Mm. Mm. But you mentioned 501c3 organisations. Mm. Uh, there's often a brother-sister relationship with the 501c4 organisation, mm -hmm. which can, can actually yeah, right. uh, engage. So it's looking at the connections yeah. between organisations that can be oh, often more, yeah. more fruitful. And in terms of universities setting up their own think tanks, have you got some examples you could tell us about? Mm. Off the top of uh, the Constitution Unit at uh, University College London mm -hmm. um, that's um, more involved in looking at legal issues, justice issues. Um, yes, that's the first one I can think that's of. Okay. And, uh, but tell yeah. us a bit about what they do, because that would be helpful. They engage in much more policy-applied work. So mm -hmm. um, the people who are connected with the um, Constitution uh, unit would spend more time than the so-called um, academic mm. um, uh, speaking to parliamentarians mm. or speaking mm. to the media or writing uh, these shorter uh, reports um, that might be commissioned, mm. uh, if not necessarily by a government department, it could be commissioned by a non-governmental organisation. Mm. And a body, and it wouldn't just necessarily be the constitution unit, they would have other forms of funding as well and seek other forms of funding in addition to um, the more usual processes of acquiring um, funds for now research. One, one of my objections to think tanks in the United States and particularly to Cato and American Enterprise Institute and Brookings, which are the dominant ones in terms of the bourgeois media that mm. covers their books, is that they're so-called experts who are introduced as doctorates with Speak about countries where they don't speak the languages. Speak about international conflicts where they don't, in fact, know the literature. And basically masquerade as experts. And mm -hmm. their so-called studies they do are alibis for op-eds that they publish, which are alibis for getting money from partisan positions, as far as I can tell. I'm astonished at the lack of expertise in what academics do these days. It's different when they're doing, for example, some people from Brookings or AEI people from RAND, econometric analysis or game theory analysis or they're doing risk assessments. But when these people get up on their hind legs and pronounce on, you know, climate science mm -hmm. and nothing, mm -hmm. as of say Cato used to do, they get up and they rabbit on about the so-called Middle East when none of them have any qualifications, would never get tenure in the US University for research as much as these guys. 
that's when I am very nervous. I mean, I'm really troubled mm -hmm. by the influence of some of these things in areas where they don't know That sounded like a statement, Toby. Not yeah, a question. And it's not actually um, a unique position. I think there are quite a lot of people who feel <laughs> the same way. Yeah. But I'd love to know your reaction to that. You tell me if that is a position of others. Um, I think there are probably at least two ways to look at it. The first would be about Washington, D.C. Mm. and just simply the concentration of think tanks uh, inside the Beltway. Mm. Okay? And that creates an ecology um, that is distinct, I think, from other uh, places, certainly when it comes to think tanks. Mm -hmm. And um, this creates competition between think tanks inside uh, Washington, D.C. that can be a perverse influence on what you're talking about that think tanks will just drag in whoever they can get to stand in front of a camera um, or speak to a microphone on some issue because they need the immediate response. Mm -hmm. um, so they will just take somebody who's got a good media appearance, mm -hmm. uh, who's got the gift of the gab, who can actually say something provocative, uh, which draws attention to uh, the organisation and helps maintain that media profile uh, for the organisation, um, <clears throat> rather than having the kind of um, substantive expertise that that you've been talking about, or going and finding the right kind of people and the diversity of opinion, um, so there is that there is something I think about the Washington mm. D.C. marketplace of ideas, mm. uh, which is not so much a, a marketplace but more of a battle of <laughs> ideas. Mm. Um, where you're just lobbying um, these different kinds of claims, um, which are not necessarily backed up uh, very uh, substantially. So there's there's that aspect uh, to it. Um, then the other aspect is that, um, and this is more general, it's not necessarily unique uh, to Washington, D.C., um, is that an expert is an expert uh, if a think tank says it's an expert, <laughs> you know, so there's this recursive process of a think tank saying, well, this is our expert and we're putting them on a platform or a podium and saying, mm -hmm. and we're creating you and various other kinds of individuals as experts by mm -hmm. continuously um, broadcasting their views um, and sometimes research and analysis through different kinds of media, um, whether that's in the written format or or, or spoken and other kinds. And it's actually getting them into um, venues where you do have um, powerful players, people who do have influence. And if you can get them in that arena, then that also works well for the organisation in maintaining its reputation as an expert organisation. And that's what I think is insidious, to come back to your word earlier. Are they really expert? Or are they just manufacturing the the appearance or the shimmer of expertise? Mm. 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 And your concern is that in DC there are so many of them competing for so little airtime mm. and attention that this has a negative impact on quality of expertise. 
Not necessarily. It can have a negative impact, mm -hmm. but it can also lift the game. Uh -huh. Okay, because Washington is a magnet. It it attracts mm -hmm. a lot of people who are um, who are well qualified and um, highly educated and want to make a difference and all those sorts of things. So it can have a positive effect, but it's it's the competition for airtime, for funding, mm -hmm. funding in particular, and also um, competition for gaining the ear of those who have the power to make decisions. But do you really think that? Taking the DC instance as central, at least for the moment, that universities are going to shove them out of the way and take over this role? I'm not necessarily saying that universities are going to proactively engage in strategies to push think tanks out of mm. the way. I'm saying it's more the case that this century it's much easier for those who want information to find alternative sources of information um, in universities, in NGOs, um, from individual websites. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a much more plural environment, yeah. okay. whereas okay. in the past, last mm -hmm. decade, um, if you wanted policy-relevant information, you actually had to go to a specific kind of organisation like mm -hmm. a think tank. Nowadays, you sit at your desk and you can actually just download it to a much greater extent. So it's, it's, it's more a combination of factors and also the nature of demand, I think, has mm -hmm. much greater power and much greater choice about what they're going to select. Um, the problem probably now is that there's too much information. Overload, information yeah, overload, yeah, yeah. and white noise, white noise, yeah. yeah. In the sense that yeah. the problem now becomes um, discerning what is good information mm. or reliable mm. or credible information yeah. uh, from amongst the dross, <laughs> and there's a hell of a lot of it. Yeah. And what's the best way of doing that? If I'm running a non-government organisation mm. and I don't have the funds to do original research. What would be your advice to me? Now, I need a good interpretation with solid empirical backing to, to give me advice on X or Y problem. Oh, my advice. Um, I, my, my advice, I think, is, is comes very much from my own position, and I would go to a university. Um, and, and look for the right kind of people, because you'd have to do an initial uh, kind of search anyway. Um, and that means often going to Google Scholar. So you mm -hmm. find the people, um, and those people might be based in a university, but they often have connections of their own to other mm -hmm. kinds of uh, organisations. I mean, when I think about my own colleagues, um, many of them um, are connected to think tanks, probably more so in the UK, okay? rather than uh, my colleagues here in Western Australia. And that's a reflection of the think tank industry in Australia. There are extremely few compared to Britain, the United States, Canada, and many other places in the Anglosphere. Um, so uh, if I was uh, an NGO in Australia, mm -hmm. yes, I'd be looking either towards universities or to consultancies, perhaps less so um, think tanks, except for a few, um, so, for example, the Lowy Institute in relation to international policy, that's a go-to kind of organisation. This is Frank Lowy, right? Yes, that's Who right. Who is 
renowned without necessarily being known by name in the United States mm. because he's, was it Westgate, Westfield? Yes, Westfield. I think. Westfield, yeah. a massive sprawling mm. shopping complex empire mm. that he runs. And he's a relatively liberal in the U.S. sense. In the U.S. sense. Personally, yes. when it comes to international mm. affairs. But in Britain, there'd be people, you're a professor there as well, at Warwick, Warwick University. University. Yeah. There'd be people there who you, whom you could recommend to me with my NGO problem. Yes. Who are articulated to think tanks, for example. Yes. And, and yeah. but I would also say in the UK context, academics are facing uh, stronger and more consistent pressures to mm. be relevant. Mm. And one way to be relevant is to interact with think tanks, with NGOs, mm. uh, with government departments. Mm. So they're a little more attuned. Um, also, there is a, a more variegated ecology of think tanks. And, mm. uh, it's easier to get to them, too. You should get to them. But if I'm the NGO and I've got some people who are pretty smart and pretty attuned to academia, mm. and they're saying to me, well, okay, this guy's got all these op-eds he writes. Mm. This woman's got all these policy papers she writes. Would a real Arabist of standing and substance, or a real climate scientist of standing and substance, think this was kosher? Or would they say, actually not publishing in the top journals, not appearing at the top conferences, is basically on the individual. Mm. Um, I mean, you have individuals like Joe Stiglitz, who mm -hmm. has a Nobel Prize, but is willing to do the popular kind of work as well. Well, wife number three is a brilliant journalist who stops yeah. in Milton Groves. But anyway, yeah, yeah sure. Um, um, I'm not somebody who buys into that idea that mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. only focus on um, the scholarly core and you go mm -hmm. for the top journals mm -hmm. and uh, I think, uh, in some way, all our work has has come, has relevance, mm -hmm. um, and it's not necessarily popularizing. Mm -hmm. um, so, for, for myself, um, one of the things that I'm involved in is I have a connection with the Open Society Foundations mm -hmm. network, which is George Soros, which is George Soros, and I'm uh, currently on the subboard of one of their mm -hmm. um, entities, which is the Think Tank Fund. Think Tank Fund. The Think Tank Fund. You write the checks. You sign the checks for I'm Georgie. Part of, I'm part of the advisory. Ah, for you instance. sign the checks for Georgie. I do not no, sign the checks. <laughs> but this is a capacity um, uh, support organisation or funding agency to um, help think tanks get on their feet, um, primarily uh, in the Caucasus and Southeastern uh, Europe, but also now extending to Nepal a couple of other uh, countries as well. It runs a worldwide um, competition, or rather I should say it, it supports a worldwide competition mm. for think tanks. It does those sorts of things. So yes, I write articles on think tanks that go to pretty good journals, mm. but at the same time I get involved in some aspects of, uh, of um, think tank activity yeah. and work. So it doesn't have to be this opposition that I'm drawing. No. So if I'm an NGO person, what I w would want to do 
and see that the person was in Google Scholar okay, Toby, as well as... Yeah, but Toby, interest. if you were an NGO worth your salt, mm. you'd already have so many partnerships and professional networks already mm. that you would know, or, you, or your mm. staff would know, who to approach, who to first um, start making uh, mm. queries with. Right, but can't there be a problem if the network is so well evolved that actually new kinds of advice that are unusual won't come in. Mm -hmm. That the network suffers from groupthink in a sense. Um, and going back to Washington, you could argue inside the Beltway there is this collective groupthink mm -hmm. that they've got themselves into uh, <clears throat> a way of thinking, a mode of mm -hmm. operation mm -hmm. um, that has become uh, quite truncated. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a performance aspect mm -hmm. to relate. Uh, connected to it in that the organisations and individuals are going through the motions of what it is mm. um, and not allowing this um, bubbling up of new ideas. But, you know, uh, networks can be closed or they can be open. Mm. Mm. Sure. And I want to ask you a couple of other things. I know we've got about five minutes left, if that's mm -hmm. all right. Mm -hmm. um, and want to make sure that you get to say what you want to say. In terms of the ten years you spent doing this research and your renown, not only for this book that we're touching on, but many other pieces of writing on many other topics. How did you go about it? What was your set of research methods, if you like, understanding of this? Mm, methods, questions. Yuck, mm. uh, <laughs> next please. Um, not terribly scientific. Um, I engaged in a lot of participant observation. Mm -hmm. uh, for a period of time I used to work with the World Bank. Um, at a time when they were setting up um, an initiative called the Global Development Network. Mm -hmm. Now again, this was a, a think tank support um, network mm -hmm. to promote developing uh, country uh, research institutes, policy institutes um, around the world uh, in order to create um, bodies that were similar in form to those that you would find in OECD countries um, and I would argue so that the elites of the developed world could talk to the elites of the developing world okay, by creating uh, these similar kinds of organisations. Mm -hmm. um, that was one part of it. Um, another part of it was to recreate civil society in the image of the West mm -hmm. by, again, creating these bodies that had their uh, origins in the American political um, system. So I was involved in the establishment of, of that particular um, initiative. And the Global Development Network uh, now has, has become quite established. It's an international organisation, so it's quite interesting its own trajectory. So the participant observation was to observe um, that kind of development. Um, participant observant due to my um, connections with the Open Society Foundations, but probably more so the Central European University where I was based for 12 years, and it's another Soros. Um, in Budapest. In Budapest, it's also funded by George Soros as well, always um, given a large endowment. Um, hey there, Georgie girl. Yes, it's uh, technically independent. Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Um, but um, being involved in um, CEU also gave me a lot of insight because the foundation and the university, for one point in time, um, shared buildings. So you interacted on an mm. um, ongoing basis. So it was immersion 
sure. in, in the and activities of these bodies. Very scientific, you know, what is uh, biology and zoology? Mm. All right, Richard, see you in a bit. Biology and zoology are all about being in places mm. and looking at things and seeing what happens. And that's actually very mm. scientific. Mm. So, uh, but also the, the length of time. It's been a very long period of time. Yeah. Uh, one of the other um, networks that I talk about in the book, it's a think tank network, um, I wasn't as closely involved. The person who just spoke, my husband, Richard Higgard, mm -hmm. he was much more um, closely involved with the security studies institutes and the economic policy institutes of the Southeast Asian uh, region, and I used to tag along to meetings that he'd go to yeah, yeah. so it's it's yeah. it's a bit more removed but I knew many of the people that yeah, were involved sure. in these uh, these networks um, and uh, because you had um, government patronage of think tanks yeah. these think tanks had more influence you could argue on the one hand or at least more entree and access mm. so they provided a different kind of um, picture of what think tanks could or could not do over a period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, certainly because of um, uh, the rapid pace of development, economic development in Southeast Asia, uh, think tanks had a lot of influence, I would have said 20 years ago, uh, because you didn't have such strong state capacity for research and analysis. That's now changed. You do now have much stronger bureaucracies and um, uh, people who have had extensive training uh, working as civil servants in those bureaucracies compared to 20, 30 years yeah. ago when the state needed to buy in expertise to a much greater extent um, than is the case today. Now, the old boy is about to come back with our friend and we're all going to go out for lunch. Mm -hmm. In the short amount of time left to us in the podcast. I wonder if you could tell us what's next for you, what you're working on now. Can you ever escape think tanks or no, I'll never, reach I'll out? never be able to escape <laughs> think tanks, so I've just got to take think tanks with me somehow. <laughs> uh, so um, the last chapter of the book talks about the transnationalization of think tanks. Uh, and my current interests are to look at the idea of global public policy or global policy. Uh, and transnational administration. Think tanks will continue to play a part in that because uh, they're seeking to inform global policy domains, global policy issues, mm -hmm. whether it's um, human trafficking, um, pollution issues. Um, there's a whole range of issues that sure. cross borders. Borders that can't yeah. really be governed. Yeah. yeah. Now, there is a lot of uh, global governance literature out there, but it tends to come from uh, international law, um, international political economy, international relations. Uh, what I would argue that I'm doing that is distinctive is taking some of the tools and concepts from mm -hmm. policy studies mm -hmm. and seeing whether or not they can be scaled up to address um, certain dynamics at mm -hmm. uh, the global and regional uh, mm -hmm. levels. So, for example, the idea of policy entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. This comes out of... Um, the American political science literature. Which, believe it or not, every now and then has something useful to say. Yes, it does. <laughs> and in particular, John Kingdon's uh, work on um, agenda setting in mm -hmm. the American political system. And he came up with this idea of policy uh, entrepreneur uh, with using um, some ideas that come out of 
organization theory um, to talk about um, these individual mm. actors yeah. that act as entrepreneurs. So I take that idea into the transnational uh, domain and look at transnational policy entrepreneurs, which can be individuals or they can be organizations, and think tanks can occasionally be those kinds of um, policy entrepreneurs at the international level. No, fascinating. So your methodological and historical experience with these things can help inform what you're doing next, but it is a broader project. Yes. They are simply one agent. Yeah. One spectrum. agent in the global agra. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah. And I like the agra idea. Uh, it's an ancient Greek term. Uh, but it has a very different notion of what the public sphere looks like. So rather than uh, our understanding in most Western contexts that you have clearly demarcated domains between the state, uh, the private sector, civil society, uh, within the global agra, it's a much more um, interconnected. Mm -hmm. Those distinctions don't hold. Mm -hmm. The global agra can be highly militarised and at the same time a highly civil, global civil society mm -hmm. domain as well. Yeah, yeah and the distinctions are, are rather lost. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Diane. It's been wonderful chatting to you about your work, learning a bit more about it. I was telling you only last night when we were at a dinner party that one of your articles has just made, been made universally freely available by Taylor and Francis. You're a very significant player in these domains, and I've learned a lot from our conversation. So I hope that you'll come back into the pod, not when you've got something to sell, as it were, but <laughs> when I can next nab you to chat about some of the work you're doing now. Sure, no problem. Mm -hmm. Thanks.